Good morning. My name is Aaron Holmes. I've been a member here at Joy since January 2020. If you would, please turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. It's on pages 979 of the Bibles provided underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, while you're turning there, just let me just encourage you with this. We might be thinking, why are we reading this again, right? Well, do we have to we read it enough? But no, brothers and sisters, we can never read his word enough. And no matter how many times we read it, we can always learn something new. So follow along with me as I read Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you will be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you have spoken in various times and in various ways to your people in the past. But now in these last days, you have spoken through your Son, who is the incarnate word. We pray that you would open the mouth of your servant Larry to proclaim that word in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, grant that we may hear, read, learn, and meditate upon your truth spoken here today. And we pray that the Spirit will soften our hearts, that those seated here also will, they who do not know you, may receive the gospel and have your law written upon their hearts, and that your word may bear good fruit in our lives. Lord, you have promised these things, and all of this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Jay, can you do me a favor and not, uh, just so that there's no confusion, can you not put the text up there? Was that? Thank you. If you want to follow along, and I encourage you to follow along, but that's, we have those Bibles there underneath the seats in front of you if, if you don't have a Bible with you. I'm only going to be talking about one little phrase this morning, so you're not going to be having to struggle too much to keep up with the sermon this morning, I don't think. Um, an author and uh, apologist, Christian apologist named Sean McDowell, uh, recently described a conversation that he had with, um, a, 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 I'll just use this phrase, a deconverted 
evangelical Christian. Now, there's no such thing, biblically speaking, as deconversion. That's not a real thing. Uh, when someone is born again, when they are converted, uh, you don't get unconverted. But you may have heard the phrase deconversion or deconstruction to describe the experience of someone who, who starts out in the church and uh, appearing to believe in Jesus and then turns away and renounces their profession of faith. Sometimes people call that deconversion. And Sean McDowell was talking with a person who had, had undergone this sort of deconversion or deconstruction experience. And he was surprised to learn that this skeptic first began to doubt uh, his faith at a Coldplay concert. Uh, now, it, it wasn't as though there was anything anti-Christian that took place at this concert. The lead singer didn't challenge anyone's faith or any particular truth claims from the stage. Uh, however, the, the concert produced in this skeptic so many of the feelings that he had always associated with congregational worship. Uh, the stadium full of people singing in unison and the strong uh, emotion that was elicited in the, the lyrics and the melody and the unifying cultural immensity, the grandeur, it, it felt to this individual a lot like church, I guess. And so then this, this person began to reason in their minds, what, what, had, what had I been experiencing all these years in church? It, it seemed to this person at a Coldplay concert, in all of the rush of emotion that was involved in that, it seemed possible to this person that maybe Christianity itself is just another man-made phenomenon, enjoyable and moving perhaps, but not necessarily true. And I, I came across this story uh, on a podcast that I listened to called, called Breakpoint, and the, the commentator there, John Stone Street, he heard this story, and he, uh, he thought perhaps this is not just an isolated example. He said, well, what if we're seeing the fruit of a generation that was sold endless attempts to make Christ cool and likable, worship relevant and hyper-emotional, and Christian morality more about politics and cultural influence than about obedience to God? And what if this generation has now found those experiences elsewhere? What if all of the trendy marketing and massive concert experiences inadvertently taught a generation to love the glamour and the feelings, but not the truth of Christianity? Now, I'm not saying that to uh, take away your enjoyable Christian concert experiences, but I do think it's worth considering that, not just as it relates to our young people, but all of us. I think that story highlights the vital need that we have as followers of Jesus and as a local congregation of believers uh, that we, as we seek to advance his mission, we are to be people of the truth. Uh, what brings us together this morning, what brings us together every Sunday morning, whether we're gathering on the lawn there or over the Sunset Auditorium or back in this wonderful building where we can hear each other sing, and that brings maybe a little bit of an emotional experience to us. That's not bad. But what brings us together is not the feelings that our gatherings produce, but what brings us together is that what we're proclaiming in song is true. 
In fact, it, it ultimately, it does satisfy. It doesn't always feel satisfying. I trust your emotions are like mine. They, they go up and down. But what, what, ultimately, they do satisfy. Ultimately, they satisfy because they are true. And this concern for truth is at the center of our uh, very short portion of scripture that we're taking up this morning as we return to our study of Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, we're considering from these verses that Aaron just read aloud to us, we're considering the church's call to war. And if you have forgotten over the last couple of weeks as we've taken a break from this series, uh, the point of this series, and it's the point I believe, a point at least, a large point of this paragraph in Ephesians 6, is that you, Christian brother or sister, you are in a battle. Uh, we live in an ongoing state of war, stalked by a deadly predator and facing a master of deception. And it's a, it's a burden of mine that we're just, and I'm not trying to accuse you, I'm just thinking about my own heart and thinking that if this is the way my heart is, it's probably the way many of our hearts are, that we're just not particularly mindful of this battle. And we're not particularly mindful of this enemy that we have as this war constantly rages on around us. And so uh, we're taking some extended time this fall to pay attention to the schemes of the devil lest we be outwitted by him as the scriptures warn against in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11. So uh, we spent the first few weeks in this series looking at verses 10 to 13 and thinking about this general call to battle, to be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might and to put on the whole armor of God that we may stand firm against the devil and his evil allies there that we read about in verse 12. And now what we want to do in the remaining weeks of this series, Lord willing, we'll be now in this series and in this paragraph of scripture till the end of November and what we want to do is we want to think about the individual pieces of armor that Paul exhorts the Ephesians to put on because we're still called to put it on today. It wasn't just for the first century in the city of Ephesus. It's for all of God's people. And today we're just wanting to reflect on this one little phrase in verse 14, having fastened on the belt of truth. And I believe the call of God to us from that little phrase is this, be ready with the truth. And that's the outline for the sermon. Those are the two points of the sermon. Be ready, point number one, be ready, point number two, with truth. I'm taking this call to be ready from the phrase in verse 14 that is translated there in the translation that Aaron read, which is the translation that's in your Bibles there that are in front of you if you're using one that's provided for you, having fastened on the belt. Now that, that, that way of wording it is kind of a modernized paraphrase of what is for us a very outdated and obscure figure of speech, literally. Anybody have the King James Bible with you? One or two, we've got, we got a few King James Bibles. So I think it says in the King James Bible, I'm going to have you read it out loud, but I think it says, uh, having your loins girt about with truth. 
And, and we all of us, maybe even some of you reading the King James Bible would say, what does that mean? Having your loins girt about with truth. Uh, to understand what Paul is getting at here, we need a little understanding of the culture and the historical context. Uh, the typical Roman attire, you've probably seen this in a, a movie about Bible times or something, but the typical attire would be a long tunic, which would come all the way down to the ankles. And so the potential for progress being impeded as a result of tripping over your long garment was a real one, especially if you were having to move with haste. And so uh, part of the function of what we now today call a belt, or more literally, as again, it was described in uh, the language of the times to be girding up your loins, what that meant was to tuck away the loose parts of a soldier's tunic so that he would be ready to move so that the loose clothing wouldn't get in the way in the middle of combat. And so uh, the idea is being ready for action. And you can, you can see that in some of the ways this phrase is used at other points in the Bible. So in Exodus 12, it's a story about God commanding the Israelites to commemorate the Passover. And it says in Exodus 12:11, in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, okay, literally with, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. In other words, you need to be ready to go, right? Because Pharaoh's gonna be coming after you, so you gotta be ready to go, having your belt fastened. First uh, Kings 18.46 of Elijah, after his confrontation with the prophets, uh, of Baal, we're told the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he gathered up his garment, he girded up his loins, literally, and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Uh, the closest parallel that we have to this kind of language in the New Testament comes from the, the teaching of Jesus himself and his instructions to his disciples about being ready for his return. In Luke 12, 35, Jesus says, stay dressed for action. At least that's the way the ESV translates. Again, this kind of awkward Greek phrase, which is identical with the phrase there in Ephesians 6, 14. Gird up your loins and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door for him at once when he comes and knocks. So you get the picture here that this figure of speech described in Ephesians 6 as fastening on the belt, it speaks of, a, of an attitude, of a mindset of readiness and alertness a preparedness to spring into action quickly. And so we're, we're reminded again from this image that the call to the Christian really is a call to warfare. There's no sense of dream, dreamy carelessness being commended here, but what's being commended, what's, what we're being called to is a decisive readiness. Uh, life as a Christian, I think I said this earlier in the series, life as a Christian is not a picnic. It's an armed struggle against a powerful opponent. So you need to be properly dressed. You need to be girded up in the armor that God has provided. Now, I, I trust that you've heard that before. If you've been here for any of the previous sermons in this series, you have heard that before. 
But I don't think, again, this is just me thinking about my own heart and my life and thinking you're probably in some way similar to me. I don't think you have been so absorbed in this war and in vigilance against the enemy in the last uh, three weeks since we were in Ephesians 6 together that you have no need to be reminded of it again. I, I don't think that's the case for you. I think it would do well for you, as it has been for me, to be reminded of this, that we are at war with an ancient foe whose craft and power are great and who is armed with cruel hate and we therefore need not, we ought not be lulled into the sleepiness of a peacetime mindset with the world and with the flesh, our sin nature, and with the devil. No, we are called to be ready. And so I ask you, are you ready for battle? I think we can say of our enemy, Satan, what is said of sin itself in Genesis 4, verse 7, that Satan, like sin, crouches at the door, and his desire is for you, but you must rule over him. And if you're going to do that, you'll have to be ready to spring into action at a moment's notice. Because these, these principalities and powers, these spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places as they're described in verse 12, they're not going to check in with you to evaluate what your day planner looks like and see if you have an opening in your schedule before they hurl some of their fiery darts at you. It's, it's, not, like they're not, it's not like there's going to be an email that you're going to, hey, I was thinking I would throw a dart of doubt at you. A dart of temptation, a dart of suffering your way. How's Monday at noon? You know, sorry, I've actually got lunch plans Monday noon. Could we do, new, could we do Tuesday at noon? Okay, yes, let's plan on that. The devil doesn't operate like that. It's going to come, the threat, the dangers, the temptations, they're going to come unannounced. They're going to come out of the blue. And so we need to be girded up. We need to be dressed. We need to be ready for action at all times. I hear the way Paul speaks of this to uh, his young disciple, Timothy. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then he says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Amen. I knew you were going to say amen to that. Mar he's been telling me to share this verse for a few weeks now, so I just put it in there, and I was waiting for it, and there it was. I, I, the reason why I haven't put it in there for a few weeks is that I've been really kind of puzzled as to what it means. Don't get entangled in civilian pursuits. Is that like, am I, are we not supposed to do our jobs? Do, do we just not clean the dishes? Is it wrong to go out and hit a golf ball with your son? What does this mean to not be entangled by civilian pursuits? Well, I think we need to be careful about distinguishing between engaging in a civilian pursuit and getting entangled in it. What is a civilian pursuit? Well, I'm not exactly sure, but I think it's anything that would lure your attention away from where God calls your attention to be. And it really could be anything. It could be money. It could be pleasure. It could be food. It could be your job. It could be your family. Could be your kids' activities. It could be Netflix. It could be anything that lulls you into sleepiness in the duties and disciplines that our 
our general, if I could put him that way, with the warfare language that our general, that our king, that our captain calls us to engage in. Anything that would make us sleepy for prayer or for meditation upon his word or for the enjoyment of fellowship with his people and worship with his people. Anything that would dull or weaken the vibrancy of our hope in the glory that is to come to us at the revelation of Christ. That's what would be a civilian pursuit that you ought to be careful about, that you ought to be vigilant about not getting entangled in. What's most in danger of entangling you, Christian brother or sister? Maybe it's not something that I mentioned. But it would be good for you to think about that this afternoon. Be good for you to ask somebody about that this week. Maybe a spouse if you have one, but maybe another uh, trusted Christian brother or sister. What is it that you see in my life could, could dull me, could lure me away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ? See, that's part of the craftiness of our enemy is that oftentimes those things are, are legitimate things. They're not inherently sinful things. We were, uh, those of you that were in the, the men's reading group uh, a couple of Saturdays ago, we were reading this chapter on sin by J.C. Ryle, and he said, temptation to sin will rarely present itself to us in its true color, saying, I am your deadly enemy, and I want to ruin you forever in hell. That's not how the enemy comes to us. He masquerades as an angel of light. And so we need discernment, and we need the help of other people to help us see what are those things that might entangle us. We need to be ready in this war. And what we need to be ready with is truth. The, the call on us from Ephesians 6.14 is to be ready with truth. Fasten on the belt of truth. Now I, I said at the, at the start, we're not here first for the feelings. I don't know how your feelings are doing right now. Don't assume you know how my feelings are doing because I'm standing up here and I get loud and I throw my hands around. I don't know how your feelings are. But your feelings are not as important as you might think they are. Truth is foundational. As the belt or this girding up the loins is foundational to a soldier's effectiveness, Right? Soldier's not going to be very uh, engaged in combat if his pants keep falling down. It's just, just, that's just, you know, that's just true. Well, we need truth. As the belt is essential to the soldier, truth is essential to the Christian and to the Christian church. It's foundational to taking a stand against the devil. And especially in our day, we need clarity on the truth. Uh, if you happen to be among us this morning visiting with us and, and maybe you don't regard yourself to be a follower of Jesus, you're just sort of checking out this Christianity thing, uh, we want to be very direct with you. We want to be clear with you in communicating that we understand our message about the Lord Jesus Christ to be the truth. We do not understand it to be a truth, like like. The path of following Jesus is one way in a buffet of truth by which you can get to God. No, we believe it is the truth. 
We believe salvation is found. We believe this because it says it in the Bible, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. And that, to say that, to say that we believe Jesus is the truth and all who would come to God must come through Jesus, that's increasingly unfashionable. Because ours is a day in which truth and fulfillment and meaning and purpose are understood to be found within the self. Not outside the self, but within the self. Right? The, the soundtrack of our age is follow your heart, or be true to yourself, or discover yourself, or express yourself, or believe in yourself. That's, that's what... That's the air that we breathe. That's the air that our kids are breathing. Our kids are getting catechized in this kind of worldview, even in movies, and we may not realize that it's happening. Uh, movies like the 2016 animated movie, Trolls. Do you know this movie? Trolls is, this, is the movie where that, that exciting, fun, dance around your kitchen song, Can't Stop the Feeling. You know that song? Any, somebody, nobody wants to admit that I'm not going to sing it, but you know, it's just, it's kind of catchy. Like I'm a pretty boring, those of you who know me, I'm a boring dude. When that song comes on in the car, it's kind of got, it's, it's a, you know, got this feeling in my body. You know, it's like, it's a, it's a good, it's, it's catchy. It, it's catchy. It's a catchy song. My son is like, what is he doing up there? I can see him so much more clearly in this building than I can outside. Um, it's catchy. And I was, I, was, I was reading an article by a, a man named Matt Smethurst on the Gospel Coalition website. He was talking about how his, his five-year-old daughter came to him one evening and asked him, is he, she said, Dad, is it true that happiness is found inside of us? Because she said she was watching this movie and it just sounded wrong. She, and she said to her dad, isn't happiness found in God? And... Uh, and, and Matt Smether said, he said in the article, he said, I'm not sure if I took her to get ice cream on the spot, but I should have. <laughs> but she said that because if you go to the clip, if even you could find this on YouTube, I understand that it's, it's got about 600 million views on YouTube right now. If you go to the animated video of this song, Can't Stop the Feeling, which I'm not going to sing again, the, there's a little, little dialogue in the movie before the song starts and the, and the dialogue is you have this one character saying, do you really think I can be happy? And then this other little happy looking troll says, of course, it's inside you. It's inside all of us. And I don't think it, I feel it. Well, kids, I want you to know something. Happiness is not something that you can just feel inside of you. Happiness is found in God. That's what's the truth. And yet we have an enemy who's full of lies, right? The devil's MO, his, his, his playbook is lies. And they sound plausible. They're plausible. We talked about this from Colossians 2 a few weeks ago. They're plausible lies. They sound nice. They work well in kids' movies sometimes. But they're lies. Our world has been brainwashed to believe. And we are not immune from this impression that comes all around us that one's feelings and one's desires are the very measure of truth. We're being brainwashed to think that what I feel must be good and right if I feel it so strongly. 
And that's not true. Because God's word says our hearts are broken and sinful. And so they cannot be trusted. Paul has already talked about this in Ephesians in chapter 4. If your Bible's open there, uh, turn back a page or two to chapter 4. Because Paul says in Ephesians 4, now this I say, this is verse 17, Ephesians 4, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of, now Gentiles don't be upset, that he's, he's talking about non-believers. He's already talked in Genesis, in uh, Ephesians 2, about how God has brought Jew and Gentile together in Christ. So there's one new race, one new humanity in Christ, Jew and Gentile. And when he says Gentiles here, he's talking about unbelievers. He's talking about people who have not come to know Jesus. Don't walk any longer because they've been redeemed. They've been set free. He says, don't walk any longer as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. He says in verse 22, they're to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Do you see that picture of humanity in those few verses? Futile and darkened and alienated and ignorant and hard and corrupted through deceitful desires. That's the picture of humanity that we get in God's word. People who don't believe in Jesus have the devil as their father. And I didn't just make that up, just so you know. I got that from Jesus. Jesus said that in John 8, 44. That if you don't believe in him, you're of your father, the devil. And so this is offensive, as it would have been offensive to the Gentiles in Paul's day, that they would have been offended by this description. People today are offended by the straightforward, unambiguous declaration that we should be suspicious of our own desires. But the truth of God's word is that our desires can deceive us. God warns us that just because something feels natural to us doesn't mean that we should assume that it's good for us because our hearts are not naturally good. And our hearts are not naturally free, but enslaved to the devil. We threw away our freedom in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden, you might look back at Genesis 3 and say, it seemed like it was only a piece of fruit. But what was in that piece of fruit was a lie that the enemy used to persuade our first parents to join in mutiny against God's loving rule of truth. And in the very enjoyment of that forbidden fruit was an act that damned all of humanity and corrupted all of creation. And it was, it was amidst that backdrop, you're wondering, where are we with, you talked about a belt of truth, I'm, I'm, when you only do one little phrase, you can dig into it a little bit more. It was against that backdrop of lies and mutiny and ensuing corruption and condemnation and captivity that God himself entered into the rubble of human destruction on our behalf. That, that prophecy that we read earlier from Isaiah 11, it came at a time 
When God's people, Israel, had turned their back on the light, they had turned their back on God's revelation of truth, and they had chosen to live in darkness, spurning God's revelation. And yet God promised them there in Isaiah 11 that he would send an anointed ruler from the line of David. That's what it's talking about when it says the shoot of Jesse. From the line, Jesse was David's father. So from the line of David, he would send a ruler who would come and deliver them. That king would rescue them and he would wear, we're told there in verse five, he would wear righteousness as a belt around his waist and faithfulness, the word in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was prominent at the time when Paul wrote Ephesians, the word is truth, the same word there in Ephesians 6. He would wear faithfulness or truth around his loins. Through this anointed one's commitment to righteousness and truth, he would save his people and he would bring in the final blessing of peace, a peace that would extend throughout creation. And so when, when Paul wrote to the Ephesians and told them that the foundational piece of armor that they needed to gird up with was truth, he had this Old Testament context. I'm fairly confident that Paul, being the Jewish Hebrew scholar that he was, he had this piece of Old Testament history in mind. Sometimes when you read commentary on Ephesians 6, they say, Paul, you know, as he was writing this, he was probably chained to a Roman soldier, and so he was looking at the, the armor of the, the Roman soldier. Well, he may have been chained to a Roman soldier, but I can tell you, and we'll see it as we keep looking at these individual pieces of armor. He had the Old Testament in mind when he was writing this passage to the Ephesians. He had in mind a divine warrior who would come and who would bring justice to the meek and who would bring defeat to those enemies of righteousness and who would wear the belt of truth. And he expected, Paul expected when he wrote this to the Ephesians, and I'm giving you this background so that you can understand Jesus Christ to be that anointed one who fastened on the belt of truth. To fasten on the belt of truth is not first a call to do something. It's, I don't mean for you first to just think about what do I need to do? The first thing we're to do is to believe something. And that is something spectacular, something almost beyond human experience and beyond human imagination, which we would have never grasped or thought up ourselves if he had not first revealed it to us. And it's the truth of the gospel. It's the truth that Paul has already labored to communicate to the Ephesians earlier in this letter. For instance, in chapter 1, verse 7, we're told that in him, in Christ, in the one who wore this belt of truth, we have redemption through his blood. We have freedom. That's what the language of redemption is about. We have freedom from the devil as our father. Freedom from the guilt and tyranny of our sin. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. That's the word of truth. That is the gospel of your salvation. He says in chapter 113, you came to believe in the word of truth the gospel of your salvation. That's the truth, as he says in chapter 421, the truth as it is in Jesus. That truth that you have been set free in Christ from captivity to the devil and from that old self which is corrupted and hardened and darkened and alienated from God and under the sentence of his righteous wrath. Regardless of how it makes you feel at the present moment, this is the truth that brings us together. This is the truth that we take up in our warfare against the devil. 
Christ died for sinners. Amen. Praise the Lord. Christ died for sinners. If you're here this morning and you've not trusted in Christ, do you see the vanity and the futility of having the fundamental truth of your life be expressing yourself, believing in yourself, discovering yourself? Have you seen that that's a a vain way to live? That it's not really getting you anywhere. That's because it's not what you were created for. You were created to know and love and glorify God, the God who made you, the God who even at this moment is sustaining you. And if you've not put your trust in Jesus, oh, this redemption from sin can be yours today. I'd be delighted to talk with you about that after the service or someone sitting around you would be delighted to talk to you about that. But brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the truth that brings us together. He died for sinners. He was crushed and he was humbled unto death, even death on a cross. And he has triumphed over sin and death and the grave being raised up on the third day by the power of God. And that's why we can say that it is the truth that Christ is risen. I will try that again. You didn't catch exactly where I was going with that. We can come together and we can proclaim this truth regardless of how you feel about it this morning. Christ is risen. That is the testimony that Jesus is faithful, girding up of himself with truth, that he has done that for us so that we, when we are summoned into God's presence, he will not condemn us for our propensity to believe the Father's lies, but he will gladly clothe us in Christ's perfect truthfulness. Christ became, Paul says in Romans 15, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. We, by faith, have this new life in Christ. We have freedom from Satan in Christ. We are raised up with Christ. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. God dwells with his people and he does not just dwell with his people but in the person of the Holy Spirit, he's actually dwelling in his people. And by the presence of the Holy Spirit and by the power of the truth as it is in Jesus, we can grow up into the image of Christ in the true righteousness and holiness that comes from Christ. Look at the end of chapter uh, 4, verse 21. I was talking about that, that all, all put off the old self, put on the new self. He says there in verse 21, assuming you've heard about him, about Christ, and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. If it's true that God has chosen you, if it's true that he's redeemed you, if it's true that he's given you a glorious inheritance, then that's better than any little enticing bait that Satan could give you that would lure you away from Christ. If it's true that he is our loving father, then we can resist the lie in the midst of our troubling circumstances that God must not care for us. No, he's our loving father who has adopted us into his family. That's the truth. 
if it's the truth that the good work that he's begun in us will not fail to be brought to completion, then we can work out our salvation now, even as the truth of the cross drives us to repentance, humility, and confession of sin, confident that he will never leave us or forsake us in the midst of our warfare against sin. The foundational truth that we need, the belt of truth to gird up around our waist is the truth of the Lord Jesus. And that's a truth that we put on together. I need to bring this towards a conclusion. We have the joy of welcoming in an elder here, so I must bring it to a close. But I don't want you to miss the togetherness of this call to take up, to gird up your loins with truth. I don't know if you remember this back in the first week of the series, I told you that the commandments in this section are all plural commandments. It's saying, you all be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You all stand fastening on the belt of truth. And I don't want you to forget that. As we reflect on these individual pieces, I hope to take at least a couple of minutes in each of these sermons to tell you how we put on this armor together We're called in the book of Ephesians to community. You can see it in Ephesians 4. You know what? It's going to set us up well to, for this, this time of elder recognition. So let's go to Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 16. That's right in between my pages. I keep turning the wrong way. He gave... He being Jesus, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain. So do you see the picture first? He's given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. We're about to praise God for bringing another one to us. He's given pastors to the church to do all the ministry for the church. Did it say that? Did it say that? It did not say that. No, it did not say that. Good, good, good. You're, you're, you're tracking with me. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. The saints is you all, God's people, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain, all of us, all the members of the body, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love. This is the ministry of the whole body, of every member. Listen to how he says it. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We're called to be in truthing relationships with each other. We are called to equip you for that. We're called to model it for you. When I say we, I'm talking about the elders, the pastors of the church. We're called to equip you. We're called to model it for you. Please pray that we would do that more and more for you. But we need each other. We need the truthing ministry of one another to engage in this battle. Do you have that? Do you have relationships 
where people, you know, you're, conf- you're telling other people, you're in relationship with people in such a way, you're telling them, these are the lies I'm tempted to believe. This is where I'm struggling. This is where I need prayer. And where you can say to somebody, maybe that even hasn't asked you, that you can say, you know, I'm, I'm thinking maybe I see that you could be succumbing to this lie. Have you considered this? Can I pray about this for you? Are you speaking the truth to encourage, encouraging one another, admonishing one another, building one another up in the truth? We need that. We need that if we are to thrive in Christ and if we are to resist the enemy. We need relationships where we're speaking the truth to one another. We're going to need that strength much more as these evil days continue. Uh, I'm going to close with this and then we'll, we'll, we'll gather around Steve and we're going to pray for him, thank God for him. But I'll close with this. 466 years ago, uh, yesterday, a man named Hugh Latimer, along with uh, another uh, partner of his, Nicholas Ridley, were burned at the stake under the violent rule of Queen Mary I, known as Bloody Mary. Uh, In Oxford, England, to this day, there stands a memorial there. It's called the Martyr's Memorial, and it honors the two of them along with another uh, martyr from that time period, Thomas Cranmer. Uh, these men, as, as scholars, as bishops of the church in England, they committed the crime, crime of standing for the truth of the Protestant Reformation, of standing up to the, the false teachings and the teachings that were antithetical to the gospel and the corrupt practices that were present in the Roman Catholic Church. These men stood against it, they spoke against it, they taught the Bible, and they were burned for it. They were burned alive for it. And on the memorial, there is this inscription, to the glory and in grateful commemoration of his servants, who near this spot yielded their bodies to be burned, bearing witness to the sacred truths which they had affirmed and maintained against the heirs of the Church of Rome, and rejoining that to them it was given, not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. There's, there's, there's three little words that stood out to me in that inscription. The first is the word affirmed. These men affirmed their belief in the truth of Christ and in the gospel. Their their martyrdom was their confession of faith. And not only did they affirm these truths, but they maintained them. They, They studied these truths and they proclaimed them and they taught them and it was their burden to see them proclaimed all over the lands of England. So they affirmed the truth and they maintained the truth and the third word is they were willing to suffer for the truth. And as you look through the pages of of history, the pages of church history, you realize that for the most part the body of Christ has not enjoyed times of religious freedom and liberty. I know we are concerned about that in our day, in our nation. And we should use the political stewardship that we have to contend for that freedom. But we should be mindful that for most of the life of the church, it has been a suffering church. And it has carried along through the suffering. And so as we reflect upon this, we're reminded that these beliefs, these truths of ours that we celebrate and that we teach, they are indeed worth suffering for. 
And they're even, as these three martyrs show us, they are worth dying for. As, as he and his colleague, Nicholas Ridley, were tied to a stake and about to be burned to death for their faith in the truth, uh, it's reported that Latimer leaned over and said, be of good cheer, Master Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust it shall never be put out. Now, we're not in England, but by God's grace, we have been caught up in that ever-burning light that keeps on burning, though all the powers of hell have sought to extinguish it. The light of the truth of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And it's our privilege to stand in the truth, to stand for the truth, and even to suffer for the truth. May God grant it to be so for us. Faithful pastors, I, wouldn't, I would have just closed the sermon here, but except what I'm about to do. Faithful pastors are a gift of Christ to help us to that end. And so I'm gonna pray for us and then we want to recognize and give God thanks for the new shepherd that he has raised up for this flock. So let's pray. Uh, let me tell you this, I love you. I like to be, I can see you all better in here. It's nice being here. Love you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth. We thank you for those who have contended for the truth before us, who have preserved the truth for us. And we pray that you would help us to stand on the truth. Help us to gird up our loins with the truth. May we always be ready. May we be growing in our knowledge of the truth, in our love for the truth, in our submission to the truth, and in our willingness even to suffer for the truth. We do thank you for raising up another shepherd among us, and we pray that you would be pleased to uh, use him and use all of us as, as brothers and sisters in Christ to speak the truth in love to one another that we all might be built up into the image of Christ together, standing firm against the devil and his lies. We ask for this all in Jesus' name. Amen.